that God has a plan for each and every one. It might look different to what we've imagined for ourselves. It might be different people in it, a different kind of person. There might be different places in it. But God has a plan for your life. And that all things are actively working together for the good of those who love God. You weren't with us last week. We've started a ten-week, uh, a ten-week study through the book of Esther, and um, we were talking before the service about why did why we're doing Esther and um, the stuff that we'll talk about today. The big theme that comes through in Esther chapter two is one of the uh, one of the big reasons why we're working through Esther because uh, it brings us perfectly to Easter um, at just the right time. Uh, so I know that uh, we quite often ask questions uh, and ask for participation, uh, <laughs> much to a lot of people's annoyance, but uh, this is definitely a question um, for, for no hands to go up this time. So without pressuring you to put any hands up, I would wonder, uh, have you ever asked yourself, is this really where I should be? See, this is just, this just when we ask questions and ask for participation, nobody does anything. And when I explicitly say, look, this is a question just for you to ponder, think about personal time, we get audible responses. <laughs> so, uh, without looking anywhere in particular, Emmy, in your own mind, I would wonder if you have wondered. <laughs> is this really where you should be? I know that you did because we talked about it a lot, probably this time last year, um, and happily you're still here. Uh, is this really where I should be? Uh, am I doing what I really should be doing? And if you're a school teacher and you've got one of those days where nobody's listening to you and your class is messy and you've got loads of work to take home, uh, and you just can't wait for that next 15-week holiday block that you all get like three times a year. If, you, if you're a teacher, you've probably thought, am I doing what I really should uh, be doing? But if you have, if you've ever wondered that, if you've ever questioned uh, your circumstances or your situation, which if, uh, if being here for 10 years has taught me anything, it's that most people here have probably asked themselves those questions. Is this where I should be? And as a result of that, or maybe as a cause of that, am I doing what I really should be doing? Uh, if, you've asked yourself, if you've asked yourselves those questions, uh, then Esther chapter 2 is going to be a great, great, great chapter for you this morning. Because it shows us that, yes, you are exactly where you're supposed to be. There are no mistakes, no accidents. Uh, Esther chapter 2 is going to show us why... Uh, and how God is actively guiding his creation. Uh, it's going to show us very, very simply that God cares enough for you as an individual to have you exactly where in the world he wants you to be. And so the big thing that's going to come through from Esther chapter 2 is God's providence. Now often we hear these big words and we think that unless we read theology textbooks for fun, they don't really apply to us. I'm not writing a, a paper or anything, so I don't need to use these words. But very, very simply, uh, providence, in the words of a man called John of Damascus, uh, who was born and raised there around 675, he described providence as the care 
that God takes of all existing things. So the word itself might not be something that we use in our regular day-by-day vocabulary, but this truth that God takes care of everything that exists ever is something that applies to us because we all exist. And therefore, God cares and takes care, actively takes care of us. So, as we move through Esther chapter 2, we're going to see some wonderful examples of this, of how God takes care uh, of all existing things. We're going to draw a really big picture conclusion, and then also a really personal and individual one too. Uh, And as we are in the habit of doing, we're going to walk through this chapter together. We're going to see what's going on, see what it says, what it means, uh, and then what it applies, how it applies to us uh, in our lives. We're going to very, very simply teach a little bit before we preach a little bit. So uh, if you've not done so already, I'd love you to join me in Esther chapter 2. If you weren't here last week and you're looking for it for the first time in your Bible for a long time, if you open your Bible right to the middle, you're going to get to the book of Psalms. If you go backwards from there, you're going to hit Job and then Esther. And like I said, we're going to be there for the next few weeks. So if your Bible's got a ribbon, go for it. And so after Esther chapter 1 before Esther chapter 2 is a really nice little interlude. Uh, There's a time gap of about three or four years. Uh, Certain things and months and dates and years tell us that. Uh, And in which time Xerxes, the king whose name we all love to to read, (laughs) Xerxes goes off and he tries to invade Greece. Now, if you, depending on where you read about this, there's a a, a particular battle uh, in that campaign uh, that was widely popularized (laughs) and hugely dramatized uh, with a lot of artistic license in a movie called 300. Now, how many people have seen the movie 300? Okay, good. No, you haven't. It's not that good. Uh, So... (laughs) wildly inaccurate version of this, uh, <laughs> of this battle. Uh, but all of that to say, this is the king that we're reading about here. We'll call him Xerxes because it's easy for everybody to read. Um, and that's what he did. That's what he was doing between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. Uh, again, the guy, wildly inaccurate. There's no way he would have looked like that riding elephants or anyway, but it's just it's a, not that great move. But that's what he was doing between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. And he comes back and he's lost, so he's probably a bit sad. And he comes back and there's no queen waiting for him. There's nobody to welcome him back and say, oh, don't worry about it. You're still my king. Oh, don't worry about it. You've still got the biggest empire in the world. Don't worry about it. He just came back to a we're talking about 300 being wildly inaccurate, but he comes back to a cold and empty chamber, let's say. There's nobody there to cheer him up. And so he has organized what we would call now Miss Persia. He has this beauty contest arranged. He thinks, I'm bored, I'm lonely, I need a queen. And that's where Esther chapter 2 picks up. So we'll read together from verses 1 to the end of verse 4. When these things had been accomplished and the rage of the king had been diminished, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decided against her. The king's servants who attended him said, Let a search be conducted on the king's behalf for attractive young women. 
And let the king appoint officers throughout all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the attractive young women to Susa, the citadel, to the harem under the authority of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who oversees the women, and let him provide whatever cosmetics they desire. Let the young women whom the king finds most attractive, the young woman, sorry, uh, become queen in place of Vashti. This seemed like a good idea to the king, so he acted accordingly. Now, considering this was the world's biggest empire at the time, we read somewhere, was it last week? Or was it in the stuff that I'd read around this, that it went from sort of India to Ethiopia? It's this huge part of the world. The odds, statistically, of one young woman, as we read, winning this were astronomical. It's the largest empire the world has ever seen at the time. And we're going to get all the attractive young women together, and we're going to pick one to be queen. But we know, don't we, that when God purposes something to happen, it's going to happen. I think about uh, the words of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, talking about the growth of the church and how people didn't really like it. Maybe we should stop it. What should we do about it? And he said, look, if this plan or undertaking originates with people, it's going to come to nothing. But if it's from God, you won't be able to stop it. And, And more than that, you might find yourself pushing back against God. And so all that to say, when God purposes stuff to happen, that stuff is going to happen. And so history tells us that 400 attractive young women, as we read, go through the next stage of this Miss Persia contest. And they spend a year in and around the palace. Uh, Verses 12 to 14 lay that out for us. And that's partly to accentuate what's naturally beautiful in them, Uh, It's partly to make sure that nobody was pregnant when they arrive, so they can kind of hook the king in with, look, I've got to be queen now. Um, And Esther finds herself among this 400. So she's gone from this huge world-spanning empire, as it was, down to 400. She's still one of 400. And she finds favor with Hegai, who oversees this, this group of 400. And because of that, he provides her with everything that she needs. Uh, she has six months of oil and myrrh, uh, six months of perfume and various ointments. She has seven specially chosen young women from the palace to come and care for her. And she uh, gets the best place to live in this harem. But we read there in verse 10, she's not told anybody about her lineage. She's not told anybody that she's Jewish. Uh, and that comes on the instruction of a man that we meet now called Mordecai. Uh, and for context, their relationship is explained in verses 5 to 7. Uh, and it's important that we know about this relationship. So we'll read that together now, verses 5 to 7. Now there happens to be a Jewish man in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai. He was the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been taken to exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been carried into exile with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile. Now he was acting as the guardian of Hadassah, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for neither her father nor her mother were alive. This young woman was very attractive and had a beautiful figure. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had raised her as if she were his own daughter. So Mordecai, we would refer to him as a cousin, uh, 
has been raising Esther, looking after Esther, as if she is his own daughter. And he obviously cares about Esther. Uh, We see there in verse 11 that as she's now part of this 400 in this very special place, he's constantly, during day by day, walking in front, walking around, asking people through the, the, the fence, let's say, what's going on? How's Esther? How's she doing? What's she doing? Where is she? All those kind of things. And so Esther's circumstances might have changed, but he still cares enough to go after her to see how she's doing and to check on her. And one of his uh, pieces of advice, one of his counsels, was to keep your Jewish nationality a secret. Now, it's it's certainly not the, the main point of this chapter, but something very, very interesting for us to go away and to think about and to ponder would be the fact that as a Jew, by law, Esther was not allowed to marry a pagan, somebody outside the family of God's people. Uh, Deuteronomy 7 talks about God's people going into the land that he's given them and says very, very clearly, don't intermarry with the people that you're going to find there. Don't give your sons, don't take their daughters to marry your sons. Don't give your daughters to marry their sons because they're going to turn you all away from, from worshipping God. Scripture also tells us and would have told Esther very, very clearly that it was against her religious law to have sex with a man who's not her husband. The biblical sexual ethic was very, very clear then and still remains now that sex belongs in a marriage. And that marriage is between one man and one woman. And yet Esther's entire purpose of being in this place is to go and spend the night with the king. And if he likes her more than other people, then they're, they're, they're going to marry. So there's just two of a few religious laws that she's kind of ignoring there. We already know from last week that Esther, Mordecai, anybody else that was still with them in Persia, was choosing to live outside of God's commands because he told them to go back and rebuild and, and restart your worship and your sacrifices. We think about Jeremiah 29, 11. We said that it's funny that so many people now claim it as me. I know the plans that I've got for you, plans for a hope and a future. And we love to claim that as if it's to us. The people that it actually was to, most of them said, nah. I'm good. I'll stay. And so it's definitely not the the main point of of this chapter, but it's just something to think on. It's not excusing her sin, but it shows us that God is working in her and through her despite her being a broken sinner just like the rest of us. And so when it is her turn to go and see the king uh, on on her evening, uh, she takes really, really good counsel, very wise advice. Last week, we said the king took very, very poor counsel when the guys around him said, get rid of Vashti, that's it. Let's One mistake and out. Here, Esther takes counsel, she takes really good advice from people who know better than she does, uh, down in verse 15. Uh, so when the ladies would go in to see the king, they would take for him a gift, kind of a token from the harem. Uh, 
They would go in there in the evening, spend the night with him, and they would return in the morning to a different part of the place, uh, to a different, even to a different eunuch, a different guy overseeing these ladies. And they wouldn't go back and see the king unless he specifically requested them by name. Uh, and then it's Esther's turn to go and see the king. She takes only what Haggai recommends. And then in verses 17 and 18, we get an account of how it went. Uh, we read that the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she met with his loving approval more than all the other young women. So he placed the royal high turban on her head and appointed her queen in place of Vashti. Then the king prepared a large banquet for all his officials and servants. It was actually Esther's banquet. He also set aside a holiday for the provinces and he provided for offerings at the king's expense. And so Esther has gone from being one of a huge amount of people in the empire to one of 400, and now she's chosen to be the queen. She's gone from being an orphan who's been raised and brought up by her cousin to the queen of the world's largest empire. And we see almost immediately that this starts to bear fruit. Her Esther being in this position immediately brings good things to the people around her uh, in verses 19 to 23. Now, when the young women were being gathered again, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther was still not divulging her lineage or her people, just as Mordecai had instructed her. Esther continued to do whatever Mordecai said, just as she had done when he was raising her. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who protected the entrance, became angry and plotted to assassinate the king. When Mordecai learned of the conspiracy, he informed Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in Mordecai's name. Then the king had the matter investigated, and finding it to be so, had the two conspirators hanged on a gallows. It was then recorded in the Daily Chronicles in the king's presence. And so chapter 2 here ends with Esther's cousin, guardian, Mordecai, foiling this assassination attempt. And again, it's not the main example of, of providence in this chapter, but it is a really legitimate example of it, that God cares for every existing being and orders times and situations and circumstances to enact, to to. to live out to make possible that care and his will. Mordecai physically and then Esther relationally are in the right place at the right time and in the right um, roles to be used of God to stand up for what is right and to report what is wrong. And so the big thing to come through from chapter 2 is Esther going from an orphan, being raised by her cousin, part of this huge empire, and she's now the queen of that empire. She's an orphan, and now she's the queen. And it is a wonderful, wonderful example of how God uses the seemingly insignificant, the overlooked, the forgotten, the unexpected, the statistically unlikely broken sinners to achieve his purpose.
And an even bigger, an even more spectacular example of the unlikely, often surprising nature of providence comes to us from maths or uh, math for some of you. Um, and we're talking about the, the prophecies concerning Jesus, his life, his death, uh, his birth, his ministry, what he did, what he said, where he went. Um, there's maybe 400, 450, 300, if you want to be really conservative, uh, prophecies, predictions, types, previews, kind of hints all about him in the Old Testament. And a group of statistical analysts took just eight of these prophecies, predictions about Jesus, and uh, worked out with mathematics and stuff how likely it would be for one person to fulfill all of these eight prophecies. Uh, and the number, how likely it was, was one in 10 to the 17th power. And if you wonder what that looks like, it looks like this. That's how many zeros, 17 zeros, one in whatever, whatever number that is. And <laughs> I'm not even going to try. Um, and the, you've probably heard this before as an example of how, how, just how much that is. Uh, if you take a coin, uh, take some coins and lay them all over the ground in Texas. Now, apparently Texas is big. Some people are nodding. Some people have no idea. I have no idea how big Texas is. It's probably bigger than Bahrain. Um, you take a coin, cover all of Texas, the floor, in coins, and the coins would stack up to be about two feet tall. All over Texas. And then you take somebody, and you blindfold them, and you ask them to go anywhere they want in Texas, which is apparently quite big, and choose the one coin that you've drawn on out of this. That's the chances of them picking the right one, blindfolded, all over Texas, two feet deep, is the same probability as, as one person, Jesus, fulfilling just eight of the prophecies made about his life. Now, obviously, we've just said so. There are much more than eight, many more than eight prophecies, predictions, hints, previews, types of Jesus in the Old Testament. And so they carried on mathematicking, as mathematicians do, uh, with 48 of the prophecies, of the 456 that one scholar uh, concludes there are there. And the extreme unlikelihood of one person fulfilling just 48 of the prophecies is uh, this number, 1 in 10 to the 157th power. And that's what that number looks like. Uh, and yes, I did spend this week typing out 157 zeros because it's, it's important to see what this stuff looks like. Um, <laughs> and now we're not going to go forward and do 456 because we're just going to fill the screen with 10 times as many zeros. But the point is the probability, the likelihood that one person can fulfill 456 prophecies, allusions, hints, previews about them, 
written over generations, uh, written over different languages and different places, uh, is just so wildly unlikely. And other than this being um, a huge and clear-cut sign uh, to the divinity of Jesus and his sonship, the fact that he is God. Other than that, we see, again, with, with statistics, with numbers, with maths, God uses statistically surprising, unlikely, incredibly improbable methods and means to work out his providence, his care over his creation. And so if this is a, a big picture conclusion, you know, Esther goes from this empire to one of 400, now she's the queen. Is maybe this is a pattern, maybe this is how God works. Well, look, Jesus, this, this is just 48. If that's the big picture conclusion, Esther to Jesus, how about uh, you and me? What about us here now? Thinking to ourselves, is this where I should be? Is it time for me to move on? Am I doing the right job at all? I'm still young enough to do something different. What about us now? Well, we, as strange as it sounds, we can take great comfort from these huge numbers. We can take great comfort from Esther's story. We can take great assurance from the truth that God cares about each and every one of us because his providence that we said earlier it's going to shine through in this chapter. God's providence is both personal and it is particular. And this means that every single one of us is living the exact set of circumstances that is going to ultimately benefit us the most and glorify God the most. By his ordering of events and circumstances like Esther the orphan becoming queen of this giant empire. God enacts, he works out, he puts into practice his sovereignty. His providence then, the method of him doing that is both personal and it is particular. For us, that's a great thing because God is a personal being. The providence being personal is a great thing. God is a personal being who cares about the people he has made. Which is you and me. God cares intimately about you and your life. And his providence is particular. And what I mean by that is that God is omniscient. God knows everything that there is to know. And therefore, nothing at all escapes his care over your life. Nothing is a surprise to God. You can't surprise him with this new desire to suddenly drop everything from your career and your life and just go become a digital nomad somewhere and work on a beach in Bali. He knows that you're thinking about that. Nothing, you're not going to surprise him with that. You can't surprise him with anything in, in, in your life. Nothing escapes his care. Nothing throws him off track. If God has a plan for someone so seemingly insignificant as Esther, an orphan in the world's biggest empire, if God laid aside all statistical probability and likelihood to have one person go from orphan to queen. If God made a way for Jesus to fulfill each and every one of the 
450-something prophecies made about him, then each and every one of us can take a great deal of comfort from knowing that God has a plan for your life as well. That his providence is personal to you and it is particular to you. And again, I've been here 10 years and I've seen people work through this question so many times. Like, is, are we in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? Is it time for me to move on? I don't know, what, I don't know why. Oh, I really, truly believe that God has a plan for each and every one of us. And it might look really, really different to what you imagined for yourself. If you think back five years, ten years, you probably would never have seen yourself here now, doing what you're doing now, in the country that you're doing it now. But being where you are in the world now is, is no accident. Being in the job that you're in now, whether you love it every day or not, is no accident. Being surrounded by the people that you're surrounded by now, immediately here in church, yes, but also bigger picture out in the world, being surrounded by those people is no accident because we serve a God who is all-knowing, who is all-loving, who is all-powerful, who is all-wise, and either through his explicit declarations, the like of which we see at the beginning of Genesis, or his permissions, just allowing stuff to happen. His good and his perfect will for your individual lives is always going to come to fruition. And that's a hugely comforting thing for us when we're wrestling with those questions that we all wrestle with of, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right stuff? Is it time for me to move or not? But rather than take my word for it, Maybe rather than take a theology textbook's word for it, or even mathematics' word on it, God has said this categorically himself in a few places in his word. And one example that uh, lots of people are familiar with, we find in Romans chapter 8. So if you do have a Bible there, I'd love you to go forward with me to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to kind of paraphrase through most of the chapter. And in Romans 8, we see this, this pretty uh, epic train of thought that begins with conversion. Like, great, I'm a Christian now. And the battle that rages within us to live differently well, I'm a Christian now. I want to live in a way that, that pleases God, as we talked about last week. I want to live in a holy way. My will is now, what I want to do with myself uh, is now different because I've experienced God's love. And from there, we read of our future bodily resurrection, the same way that Jesus was raised. Uh, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will also make your mortal bodies alive through his spirit who lives in you. Then, practically, as a result of that, this means that we are now living a life to a different design. We're going to a vastly different 
destination. We're not now living in the flesh, but we're living in faith because God has said there is a resurrection in your future. We're now part of God's family, adopted to sonship. Um, and so, as a result of that, if things are difficult now, if, you're, if we're questioning where should I be, what should I be doing, we know for sure that, that good is coming in our futures. We know for sure that better is coming in our futures because... And here's the guarantee of providence and care and being known by God and having God work out his plan for you starts there in verse 28 of Romans 8. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. There is God's guarantee of providence over your life. For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, we know. There's no question, there's no doubt, there's no wondering. We know that all things, everything that's happening in your life right now, is working together for good. Everything that's going on, all the questions that you're asking, the, the, the prayers that you're praying, the conversations with people around you that you're having about what's next for me, what I should be doing, is this the right place, is it time to move on? All that stuff is working together for your good because God loves you and he cares about your life and he wants what is best for you. And so the, the, the providence, the care, the active care that allowed Esther to become queen of the world's largest empire, the providence that allowed Jesus to fulfill each and every prophecy made about him, about the Messiah, that same level of care and love, that same level of detail is working in your life too. And again, I really, really believe because scriptures say so, not just because I've lived here for 10 years, that God has a plan for each and every one of us. And it might look different to what we've imagined for ourselves. There might be different people in it, a different kind of person. There might be different places in it. But God has a plan for your life and that all things are actively working together for the good of those who love God. So being, being where you are in the world right now is no accident. Being in that job is no accident. The friends, the relationships, the people in your life are no accident. And so I would leave you this morning with a, a very scriptural exhortation to remember when things look confusing, when you don't know whether you should be coming or going, I would really, really exhort you to remember that with Esther chapter 2, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, you can know for sure that God has a plan for your life as well. Amen.